Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Good morning. As you might have noticed from that brief introduction that was made of me, I'm kind of a weird duck. The first thing you got going for you is you don't video record the message. So I don't have a cameraman because I normally challenge a cameraman because I wander. When I preach, I'm all over the place and the cameraman's going trying. And then there's if there's a sound engineer, he's trying to modulate my voice because I speak very loud and I speak very, very quiet. So we're going to have an experience for the next four Sundays. But let's get going. In our first scripture today, we're going to hear from Paul. And we're going to hear him wondering, why is it I don't do what I know I ought to do, but instead I do the opposite, in spite of the law? Now the law he's talking about, as a good Orthodox Jew, he had 613 laws that governed every aspect of his life coming out of his faith. 613. And in spite of having 613 laws, which covers everything from how he dressed to what he ate, to how he could walk, to how he could pray, he still doesn't do what God is calling him to do. Kind of like And then he finds there's only one answer. Let's turn to Jesus. Here now, the passage from Acts. Romans. <laughs> We're there. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but the fact it is no longer that I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul really has a way with words. You get lost in all that back and forth, back and forth. Our second reading comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. And in this passage, to set it up, Jesus has learned that John, his cousin, John the Baptist, has been taken into captivity. But that John is confused because John has sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, Are you the one? And so Jesus sent them back with, tell them what I've been doing. But Jesus is dismayed 
because no one is listening. No one is struggling to understand. And so he uses parables, which can be kind of confusing, but he's a tad bit sarcastic. Because things are not getting through. The message of love is not getting through. Because people are presuming they know all that is necessary to know. Here now, the passage from Matthew. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, look, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of our Lord. Amen. So, a couple of months ago, there was an article in one of the major newspapers, I forget which one, but it had an intriguing title of Would You Want to Know the Exact Moment You Were Going to Die? Would you want to know the exact moment that you're going to die? I, of course, read it. And it referred you to a website that claimed it could calculate when you were going to die. It was something like deathclock.com. And being a fool, I went to that website. <laughs> And it had a bunch of questions, so I answered the questions and hit enter, and it popped out when I was going to die at 4 p.m. on February 17th next year. And I went, Whoa, this ain't right. There's no way this is right. So what I do? I went to John Hancock Life Insurance website, and they have a life calculator, and they've been in business of figuring out how long lives are going to live. And I answered all of their questions, and they had more questions, by the way, more accurate ones. And we hit enter, and it popped out. I have another 14 years. Yeah, that one's more like Wait a second. Neither of these asked me if I had a dog. And we all know that if you have a dog, you live longer because the dog gets you out for exercise and fills you with joy and all that other stuff. And so I'm probably going to live forever. <laughs> that little game I played there with myself, that's called confirmation bias. When I don't want to hear something that disturbs me or gives me the wrong answer from what I've already pre-concluded, that's confirmation bias. I avoid difficult truths that way. It's kind of what Jesus was talking about. The wise think they know. 
it is revealed in ignorance. Because the wise are all filled with confirmation bias that they have all the knowledge that is necessary. And they don't want to hear a difficult truth. They don't want to hear a truth that says, I have to change how I live because I've already defined how I am going to live. And I don't like change anyway. A little scripture. In scripture, numbers don't always mean just the number. Right? And I'll use example seven. Seven means perfect. Why? Well, because from the creation story, God did the world, all creation, in seven days, so that's perfect. Six is less than perfect, so six is illegal. If you have more sixes, then the more evil you are. But the one I want to talk about is 40. When you come across 40 in Scripture, hold on to your hats, because 40 means, look out, life is changing. All right? 40. It rained. For 40 days and 40 nights, and the ark floated. And the ark was out upon the oceans and dark seas for 40 days, before they saw a dry land. Moses wandered in the wilderness with the lost people of Israel for 40 years. Moses climbed up on the mountaintop and sat for 40 days and nights to discern God's call. Even Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days understand what God was calling him to do. Forty in the scripture doesn't mean one number more than 39 and one less than 41. Forty is an indication. Look out. Things are never going to be the same. Life is changing. And it's almost always associated with a journey. A journey to understand how God would have us live. Even Jesus undertook this journey to understand how his body was calling him to fulfill his ministry. We don't have 40 days together. We don't have 40 nights together. We have four Sundays. But still, I want to go on a journey with you. It's just going to be an abbreviated journey. It's just going to touch the surface. It's just going to try and give you some things to think about. But in order to come along, you're going to have to do something about your confirmation bias. That inherent tendency that we have as human beings not to want to be uncomfortable, not to want to hear about a truth that we don't yet accept, or a truth that might make us change. We're going to ask that you at least put the brakes on that. Put the brakes on it because we're going to be dealing with some difficult truths over these four Sundays. And at the end of the four, you can tell me don't let the doorknob hit you in the butt when you leave. We're glad you've been seeing you and we won't see you again. All right. So what we're going to do in the UCC, we have an outstanding Old Testament scholar, probably one of the greatest Old Testament scholars currently living, and happens to be in UCC. His name is Walter Brueggemann. If you ever get a chance to read one of his books, by all means, pick it up. Right? He's, getting, he's even older than me, so he's getting near the end of what John Hancock would call his life expectancy. 
so he's a little quiet. So it's very important that we pick his wisdom while he's still around. But he says in this day and age, the church has three urgent tasks. Three urgent tasks. That's to confront society with the truth, which it does not want to hear. The second urgent task is to guide them through the grief that results from understanding what this truth requires. And the third urgent task is to give them hope that in spite of that truth and that grief, there is hope. Those are the three urgent tasks. But to get there, we need to take a journey. So today I'm going to talk about journeys. Next week, I'll talk about the truth. The following week, I'll talk about the grief. And the week after that, I'll talk about the hope. Now, some of you are going to want to come back for the hope and skip the two in between. That's human nature. When I was in my mid-50s, you know, actually when I just cracked 50, my wife, Gloria, died. She went from being perfectly healthy to being permanently dead in 13 days, most of which were spent in a coma. I couldn't even say goodbye. That motivated me to take a journey. It started me down a path that was absolutely counter to the path that I had been on because I had been a very successful corporate executive. As an engineer in the chemical industry, managing not just one plant, but actually two highly hazardous chemical plants. I was a workaholic. So in my early 50s, I went to seminary at the prompting of my second wife, Sinclair, who said, I talk a good story, but it was about time I did something about it. So I went to seminary, and I went to an inner city seminary in Detroit. And for the first time in my life, this is going to be stunning to you guys, but it's the first time in my life, as a white male, I was in the minority because the class was in the inner city. And I was just absolutely stunned. Once I got past my confirmation bias, I was absolutely stunned by the wisdom of the other students who did nothing like me and didn't have my background. But the wisdom and the insight into God that I could gain if I just shut up and pay attention and let go of that confirmation bias that you had to look like me, or you had to pray like me, or you had to talk like me in order to have the truth. When I became a pastor, I encountered what we call as thin spots. Gaelic theologians offer us the fact, their understanding of truth, and that we are absolutely wrong when we picture God up there and us down here, and the devil in the deep blue sea. Gaelic theologians would argue that God is constantly present in our lives. We're never outside the presence of God. We're just too busy to notice. We're just too involved to notice. We're just so task-minded that we can't even sense that God is there. But they say there are thin spots. 
There are times in our life where the barriers that we have put between us and God get thinned to the point that we can palpably sense that we are in the presence of God. If you're deep into prayer, uh, particularly contemplative prayer, I know people who by controlling their breathing and centering themselves in contemplative prayer can feel the presence of God. I'm not that good at prayer, but I know people who Some people find thin spots in music, particularly music that touches not only the heart, the mind, but the soul. Some people find thin spots in particularly worship experiences. For me, Monday, Thursday, foot washing, or Tenenbrough services on Good Friday. But there are events in life that become thin spots. There's events on our life journey that if we're willing, if we shed our confirmation bias, we can experience the presence of God calling us to the way God would have us live. I've had that as a pastor ministering to people on their deathbed. I've had that as an individual grieving the loss of my wife. But most often for me, nature is where I experience thin spots. When I am alone with God's good creation, I can be overwhelmed with the presence of God. There's a island off the coast of Maine that has a national park, the Kitty National Park. On it, there's a mount. They call it Mount Cadillac. It's not really a mountain, but it's tall. Right? And they say if you stand on your tippy toes, you can be the first person in the United States to see the sunrise. People don't go up there to see the sunrise. People go up there to see the sunset. And if you go up there at sunset, there will be a couple hundred people who will be gathered on the cliff watching the sunset, and on the right day, it is absolutely stunning. And you'll hear people break out and cheer God for the gift of that sunset. But you can also experience the presence of God in the sin spot with another human being particularly a human being that reveals to you a life experience that you could never have on your own, just set in your own ways. What do I mean by that? I've gone on a number of immersion experiences as a pastor. So I've been to Palestine so I could be with the people who live with the threat of violence every day of their lives and experience a thin spot of seeing a Palestinian that has lost someone to the violence and a Jew that has lost someone to the violence. Here's the call to come together and present their shared grief so that people might hear there's another way. We don't need to be killing each other. I've been to the border with Mexico in the free trade zone to see the cost of what it means so that we can get cheap TVs. 
I've been in the shanty town that are down in the valley. Where the only thing that holds up this shanty is it's leaning against this shanty, which is leaning against this shanty, which is leaning against this shanty. And it's in a dry riverbed, except when it rains. Or when one of the factories that are up on the hill that surrounds this riverbed, the free trade zone, in the dark of the night, opened a drain pipe. And the black and the brown and the blue and the green come down. And you can see the residue in the spring. And you can look overhead and you can see some buddy has climbed up, shimmied up these poles across the valley and pirated some electricity. And the wires come down and run along the dry riverbed through the puddles. And occasionally a stray dog or a kid will get electrocuted. But you hear people who live with this experience and still find God. But you gotta set aside your confirmation bias to experience. As a member of a Christian peacemaker team in Colombia, we have been called in to a village up in the Andes Mountains. We are asked to be there to be an international peace presence between the villagers and the Colombian army that is set up right outside the village. Because the villagers were afraid that the Colombian army was there to move them off the land. Now I'll tell you that story next week a little deeper. But what I want to tell you is the village was mule powered. And they're up in the Andes, there's no power other than mules in their own back break. And they had given over one of their cabins to the peace team to be there. And in the middle of the night, I'm up doing what an old man does in the middle of the night, up in the Andes Mountains outside the cabin. And I'm just overwhelmed by all these stars. And at the breaking of dawn, and so overwhelmed, I actually break out in a hymn. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand has made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. My colleagues in the cabin were saying, will you shut up? It's so early. <laughs> Thin spots are not necessarily transferable. <laughs> what I'm getting at, though, in order to experience a thin spot, unless you're like Paul, where you get knocked off your horse from lightning, you have to be open to it. You have to be willing to risk to shed your confirmation bias that God can't possibly be in this place. God is up there. You got to inside your phones and your family and simply be in the presence of God. We're in a very dangerous time right now. We're in a time that uh, if we keep on the path that we're on, 
the kid. Don't have the future. So what do we do? Wendell Berry, who is one of my favorite poet, philosophers, farmers, says, when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. When we're willing to accept that we need all the help that God can give us, when we're willing to accept that we don't yet have the wisdom, but we need to find how to live. That's when we started doing What guides our journey? I'll tell you what guides my journey. There's two bookends. The one bookend is the creation story. The poet that gave us the creation story did not teach us how to build a universe. And he gives us the value of the Every day, God looks upon what God has created and says, This, <laughs> this is good. Day three, day four, this is good. Day five, this is good. Day six, not this is good. This is very good. And the other bookend of my scriptural basis is the commandment to love. Understanding that love, in the Greek language that Jesus was using, the term he was using was agape, which means sacrificial love, which means the love that says, I'm willing to give up something that I have so that you might have the opportunity to live. Again and again and again in the Gospels, somebody goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what, what is the most important thing for me to do in this life? What is the most important thing to do? He's really asking the same thing Paul did. There's 613 laws. Which one's the most important? Jesus says, you know. You know. Love God. Love neighbor. Love self. And when he does this to a rich young man, the rich young man with his confirmation bias says, I, I, I have done this every day of my life. What else could I do? And Jesus looks upon him with love. It's very important for that prayer. Jesus looks upon him with love and says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all your possessions. And come, follow me. And the rich young man went away with evening. Because he had too many possessions that were his God. He could not share his God. So come. Let's journey together. Let's spend the time in the scripture. Let's spend some time with the difficult grief. And by all means. Let us find hope in the process. Our God is calling. Come, follow me, this day and all day.